Hi and welcome to Beyond All My Expectations. Today we have with us Rashida Abdullahi, who's the founder of Strand Sahara and also um, co-founder of the Black Founders Hub. Hi Rashida, how are you? Hi, I'm great. Thanks for having me, Nikki. Thank you so much for joining me today. I was saying before we pressed record, I'm really excited to speak with Rashida because she is a lawyer who actually studied law. I felt like we're going to get into that because I have met, I'm meeting a lot of people who study law and didn't always go into the practice. And I just, I'm really just <laughs> intrigued to see, you know, also speak with someone who's really connected to the profession and has had a long-term connection to the profession. So just first of all, how's your day been so far, Rashida? It's been good, very chilled. Um, I've had a nice start to the day. A bit of sunshine outside always helps as well. But looking forward to this conversation, I always love digging into this. I never know what's going to come out of it. But, you know, I think it's really good to, to reflect on the journey and also think ahead and what we want to, you know, what we want to achieve. So looking forward to what we're going to talk about today. Awesome, same here. Um, yeah, I was going to say it's very nice to wake up and have the light wake you up rather than having to struggle to wake up in darkness as we had to be, I think, well into Feb. So yeah, fingers crossed we actually do get sun and heat because I think we're just getting the sun now, but not the heat. And I'm hoping, you know, we start to see that warmth because I would like to sit outside <laughs> and actually be able to sit outside with our like three coats on. Yeah. Come on, England. All right, then. As we always do, I have guests intro themselves. So Rashida, I'm going to ask that you just give us an intro of yourself. Who are you personally, professionally? Yeah. Love that question. So my name is Rashida Abdullahi, and I am the proud daughter of a long line of amazing women and men from the Caribbean and lovely continent of Africa. My mother's from Barbados. My father's from Sierra Leone. I grew up and was born in the UK, so I feel like I have this wonderful matrix and mix of cultures and identities which make me who I am. I think the thing that really matters to me is I've always had a sense of justice and a desire to see more equality and equity in the world, and that has driven through my whole life. When I was young and really interested in politics and activism and working with, you know, the local authorities, local government, that really shined through then. My decision to become a lawyer was very much driven by that and wanting to be an advocate. So I did go into the legal profession wanting to make a difference in that way. And so becoming a lawyer was was sort of a natural progression for me. I did though find myself in the commercial world. So my experience as a lawyer was as a commercial lawyer working in international arbitration, which is a form of dispute resolution. So not initially what I expected to go into, but I really enjoyed it because there's something about the challenge of, I guess, dealing with a commercial problem and then analyzing an underlying contract and then putting together the arguments as to why your client should win and then actually having that fight in the courtroom or in the in the hearing room um, was really really fulfilling for me so i spent nine years working in international arbitration at one of the world's largest law firms in London and also in Dubai. I've had the privilege of studying, not just in the UK, but also in the US. And so got a, an opportunity to see what life is like there. That's also very much influenced who I am today. The culmination of all of that is that I've now, after having my children, decided 
that I really want to lean in more to that original desire to bring more equity and um, justice to the world. And that for me has culminated in starting Strand Sahara, which is still a legal firm, but very much focused on building African-owned businesses so that we can see more of Africa's wealth being reinvested in Africans. Because at the moment, a lot of the business that's going on in the continent, a lot of the profits that are being made leave because they're being made by businesses that are predominantly located in the West. And related to that is Black Founders Hub, which is a more recent addition to the, to the, the family. And that is an organization, a not-profit organization which is about bringing together people like me who have stepped out from the corporate world in professional services to start their own businesses which are really supporting our community and the black community or as I like to say people of African origin and through the power of network really supporting each other and holding each other up so yes that's how I describe myself today, it changes day to day, but I really think that for me, I woke up very much aware this morning that justice is what it's all about. It's about putting right a lot of the wrongs that we see in the world and using my expertise, my time, my resources to move things in the right direction. I feel like that's such a layered and storied introduction of yourself. And I really, really love that because there's just so much to unpack there. Like, I want to start with, you know, your, I guess, heritage being of Sierra Leonean invasion descent. What, you know, what was it like growing up with these two cultures? How, do, how, were you, how did you embrace them? Is it through food, language? How have you been able to embrace your cultures just growing up? It's so interesting. So for anyone who's grown up in the UK in, well, I guess it's the 90s, from similar backgrounds, you might be aware that, you know, growing up, there was a lot of animosity between the African community and the Caribbean uh, community. And so I found myself in this really weird position, you know, being straddled between the two. And I guess it meant that I had a really, really clear perspective on what was going on and the ridiculousness of it, because there is no difference. (laughs) You know, we're all the same. And actually, this need for us to be better than someone else and finding a way to achieve that is really damaging. And it's something that I think is part of a mindset that perhaps, you know, we have grown up with as opposed to adopted ourselves or created ourselves. It definitely doesn't serve us to think that way. And so it was challenging. You know, I remember having quite a few friends who would say really disparaging things about the other side, whether it was my friends who were from an African country saying, oh, well, we sold them, they're worthless. Or when they're talking about, you know, other people from the Caribbean, I thought, wow, "Wow, interesting. (laughs) And you're proud of that, right? Wow. Obviously they weren't, but this is the sort of things that, you know, were just said flippantly. And then on the other side, my friends from the Caribbean saying, oh, these Africans, they, you know, really disparaging things, really born out of the image that we all see in the West of Africa, of it being a place of poverty, of hopeless, helpless, hapless people. So that was interesting growing up. I have to say, I probably had more influence from my mother's side, because we would holiday in Barbados all the time. I was really with my Bajan family, we're all quite musical in the family and, and soca music, calypso, carnival, all of that was very much part of our growing up. And so I did feel 
when I got to sort of university age that I wanted to know more about my Sierra Leonean connection. And that was when I was able to visit Sierra Leone for the first time. And I loved it. You know, I just, from then on, I knew that, yeah, this is home as much as, you know, I love the Caribbean. We have an amazing culture. It's rooted in, you know, its foundations are from the slave trade and actually the richness of who we are and our cultures comes from Africa. And I saw that really clearly for the first time. And so I'm really happy now that those divisions have, I at least in my, from what I see, have gone away and there's more yeah. of a connection between the Caribbean and the African community. I'm so, so proud of the Bajan PM right now, Mia Motley. Yes. She's doing amazing things. I mean, she's opened up the first embassies. So there are Bajan embassies now in Kenya and Ghana. These are the first Caribbean embassies opened up on the continent. And I love that. So, yeah, I see that we're sort of coming together and all sort of coalescing around our African identity and getting to finally to that point of unity, which I think is going to be really important for moving forward when it comes down to economic empowerment for people. Yeah. You know, so when I asked that question, it was rooted in, you know, the understanding of where these understanding how, I guess, tenuous the links between black identities have been in the UK in the past. And you're someone who, you know, whose heritage basically is, you know, on what or represents the opposite sides that were, I'm going to say, warring against each other, because in a sense it was, and it was, and it was a very emotional one, you know, it's not a physical one, but people were saying words and speaking in ways that were just harming the internal and creating, creating in people sorts of complexes about who they are and where they're from. And you growing up at the center of this, I think your understanding, your perspective is interesting to hear because you're very much just like, friends, I'm both these things, I'm not either side. And all of this is, I guess, irrelevant, but at a time it wasn't. And it's nice to see, and I think you're right, there has been a change, there's been a shift towards, you know, an outlook that's just like, this is, you know, blackness is what all one, you know, let's just band together. And I think I'm hoping this is sustained and continues to be developed. And it's so wonderful to hear about the embassies, you know, in Kenya and Ghana, because, you know, we should be, you know, coming, we should be, you know, coming to see each other, spending time with one another, learning from one another. Yeah, and that, yeah, that's really interesting for me. And I also asked that question because recently I read a book whose author, I can't remember, her name's Michelle something. Well, it's called Crying in H Mart. And it's, she's, you know, half Korean and half, I guess, I know white American there we go and she's also processing the loss of her mother and it's through food she's also like this is the you know the way I was able to reconnect like and she spent loads of holidays in Korea but it's also when her mother passed she was like oh okay food is the thing that's going to root me here and I think it's always interesting to see the ways people you know tie back to home either like Mm -hmm. by going back and physically being there or through language through food I think Again, I think food is just such an important <laughs> part of culture yes. um, because it just, I think you eat something, you smell something and it just takes you, you know, back to a place or a time or a moment and it connects you back to something so much bigger and greater and wider than yourself. But yeah, so if this is for anyone, Crying in H-Mart, fantastic essay <laughs> just about, you know, food and it makes you want to start cooking Korean food even though it seems very complex. <laughs> Nothing um, makes me want to start cooking, I have to admit, okay? Food is not... <laughs> I like eating it, but making it, mm-mm, no, no. But I would say music also is something yeah. that sounds really powerful. Like the connection and the sense of belonging that I get from that is amazing. 
I did say that and I feel like yeah when I look at you know I speak to my Caribbean friends I'm like the music is there's just something about the way it brings you know communities together I still I'm trying to go carnival but COVID (laughs) has not let me because I do want to go and spend time and experience it from that perspective because obviously we have Notting Hill in the UK I think there's a difference to experiencing carnival you know within a Caribbean country that I really really um, would love to be a part of seeing let's just move on to talk about your educational background so you went to NYU and King so you know you were in America and you're also in the UK and you studied law in both spaces what were the differences in approaches to studying law in you know in UK versus US did you see that there were differences to how law is taught either like is it more emotive is it more like yeah what was the difference in how you were taught in both spaces there was a big difference and it took a big adjustment. So I'd come from the system in the UK where, you know, I'd I'd kind of mastered it. I was really good academically. I was gifted with that ability to, I guess, be receptive to the way that we were taught here. And that's what it is. You know, I know there are so, so many intelligent people, but for whom the school system and the way that it's set up just doesn't tap into their intelligence in the same way. So I'm always very conscious that I was just very lucky that for whatever reason, the way that my brain is wired was set, you know, set me up to do well in this particular school system. Yeah. Academically, I was able to excel here quite easily. I understood how it worked. I understood what's expected of us. You know, I understood, you know, things like here in the UK, it's very much syllabus led. And once you know everything in the syllabus, you'll be fine because they're just looking for you to demonstrate that you understand. Oh, those yes. Right. So it's like you can, even if you don't attend any classes, if you've got the right textbooks, you've got the syllabus, you've got you know, your class yeah. papers, you can do, you know, you can do well. It's all about exams, pretty much. And so that was very much the way that I was accustomed to being taught here. It followed through with the law degree in that there were, you know, it was predominantly marks through examinations. So that suited me. I was able to, I had really good memory with a lot of these things. So that really helped as well. Um, I'm just laughing about this because it's quite ridiculous how we judge our young people sometimes. But yes, so that experience meant that I was able to excel here. When I went to America, gosh, things were different. It was less about your sort of individual writing, whether it's in an exam, an essay. And there was a lot of emphasis on your contributions in class. There was a lot of emphasis on your ability to argue positions, to explore propositions, to debate with one another in the classroom. And that was actually taken into account when it came to your, you know, your grade, uh, your grade at the end of the semester, each semester. And then there was also this expectation that you, you know, you're in the classroom in the UK, a lot of the time when you're in a lecture room, you are being lectured to, to, I guess, broaden your knowledge from the perspective of the lecturer, whoever's giving you that information. In the US, it was very different in that instead of being lectured to, the people at the front of the room were simply asking us questions and then expecting us to come up with the answers. And I thought, well, well but you're the expert. You're like, the one that's this. Like, aren't you supposed to be telling me? But no, it was very much, no, 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 you do the reading. And then in class, we just talk about it. And that was very frustrating at first, because I thought this is not how it's supposed to be, obviously, based on my experience here in the UK. Um, But it also meant that the things that I had shied away from, so the talking up in class, you know, the 
really going into debates with people were really damaging, you know, my my grades. And I obviously didn't like that. So I had to learn to be more, I guess, willing to put myself and my ideas and opinions out there, even if they were wrong, or even if they were grounded in, you know, very shallow understanding of the underlying, you know, subject matter, it didn't matter. It just was important that I was able to say something that I believed in, and then we could debate it in class. So that was a really difficult learning experience because it just wasn't familiar. And there were some bits about it that I didn't like because it meant that, you know, the cockiest people in class often who didn't have a clue what they were saying were the loudest. Were the loudest and they were being, you know, graded positively for that. And you can bet yourself that the ones who were falling into that category more often than not were white men. Yeah. Um, and so it did feel a bit like, oh, well, you know, I don't I don't know, because they're actually talking nonsense. But the fact that they're talking is somehow being, yeah. you know, is somehow being held up as, you know, them doing well. But it was good because it just forced that that discipline, really, of being. Well, firstly, speaking up, not worrying about whether what you say is right or wrong. It's more about being part of the conversation. And after, you know, doing quite abysmally by my standards in the first semester, I was able to then catch up after that. And so I'm grateful for that experience. I think it's really useful, actually, to give young people that confidence that and not necessarily young people, but anyone that, yes, we do have professors who have been studying this for a long time, but actually your mind is just as good as theirs. And yeah. you are able to contribute from your own perspective in a way that's valuable. So yeah, that was my experience of the differences between the way law, but more generally, you know, the approach to study was in the UK versus the US. That's so interesting. And I, I love what you noted about, you know, the ways in which we sort of judge young people with education. I think, you know, one of the things the UK does and does well, it's, you know, it, it teaches you to do the research or look into the, and I'm going to say, quote, unquote, facts of things. So you're seeking the right answer. But what it then fails to teach you is that there isn't always one right answer or, you know, a position can change. And that's where the conversational side of the American education system serves because you can say I'm going to look at this and I can see that by the end of my conversation I hopefully should be able to see 10 different perspectives whether that happens or whether people just talk themselves in circles is a whole other thing but yeah I yeah. think it's it's so important to have that balance I mean it'd be nice if both systems could sort of borrow from one another and say we're going to give you you know the foundation of the research and, the, and then we're also going to give you the space to challenge you know what's being said or even challenge what you think is right because yeah. I think part of law which we're going to come to is you know you, you have to do this exploration of saying this is what I think I know but actually what's on the other side of what I know and beyond law I think um when we look at, we talk about the word justice which you use when you introduce yourself that's a really important thing for us to excavate like what do I know what do I think is right and what does right look like in different situations because you know again yeah different you know conditions change what we think you know more right or wrong is um so I'm just going to do a step back before really dig into your career okay. and ask this question because you talked about you know your study of law and you know experience in two different education systems your choice to study law coming out of justice I think it's a really interesting one because you know when you look at justice people might be like I want to be a politician I want to be a community organizer I want to be an activist 
why was your attachment to justice law? Why was there, was there, why was there a direct correlation? Is, it, is there a familial history of lawyers or was that just what you understood as, you know, the justice yeah. system? Yeah, absolutely. It was it was what I understood the role of a lawyer to be based on what I don't know but it was I guess TV shows probably blonde you know I don't know well you know for me I was very much brought up brought up on the BBC so it's very serious you know highbrow legal dramas whether they were right or wrong or accurately depicting what was going on I don't know but it was always giving the impression that gosh barristers are people who stand up for what's right they advocate on behalf of others who aren't able to for themselves and they fight for justice so I didn't have lawyers in the family but my understanding was that that was the role that they played in society and so that's what I wanted to do now obviously I learned more about the legal system and the industry and how it really works as I studied but very much early on it was for me actually it was a choice between politics and law I felt that you know both were avenues that were suited to my interests and abilities I knew I wanted to be an advocate and I knew that I wanted to do something where I felt I could make a real difference to the people that I felt were not being fairly treated or who did not have the right opportunities or you know were sidelined in some way or were not receiving the justice they deserved and so yes I went into law thinking that yeah that would be a way to do that initially training to become a barrister and then learning about the opportunity to do international arbitration and the fact that that would take me not just in the UK but globally internationally into other countries I thought yeah actually I think that's that's where I want to be because yes as much as you know my upbringing has been in the UK and a lot of the inequalities I've seen are here my eyes have been open to the fact that a lot of these issues that I'm particularly passionate about you know that affect people who look like me are actually global issues they're not local ones and yeah, the opportunity to have an international career is what led me eventually into the corporate sort of legal world. All right, yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much for that exploration of your decision to go into law. And I think, you know, there is a connection. I think there's a representation of law as solely this, you know, fight for justice. And I think once you age, let's put it that way, you come to understand in many ways that the law does manifest and the many ways it actually impacts, you know, our lives. You know, you think about beyond the court system thinking about even things like insurance and signing up for a phone terms and conditions and we're just like oh the law really does manifest in all these little things that we do but I love that the foundation for you was oh justice what does that look like and how can I use um, law to do this now what then was it like to come from you know this foundational idea of what you wanted to do in law to actually working within law because you started as a tax you know associate what was by this point were you prepared for a different approach to the law or was it just was it still a shock I think after studying so undergraduate level in the UK at King's and then at master's level at at NYU I had a greater understanding of you know legal frameworks and how they work and the fact that as you say they underpin everything you know the law is such an integral and important part of any society because it it helps you know it it sets the boundaries it sets the rules for how we deal with each other for how the government deals with us for how businesses interact and it helps build trust because we know 
what the rules are essentially and that the rules will apply to everyone where they should do but what I also was starting to see is that you know the law is very much you know man-made so it's not always what it should be in terms of you know when I think about justice and you know the moral impediments sort of behind that are not always reflected in the law and so there's always work to be done to develop the law so as to continually make it I guess reflect our own moral values in society and ensure that the rules indeed do reflect what we think are reasonable and just outcomes. So that aside going into corporate law then for me it was very much about wanting to become a better lawyer you know at that point you've studied you've read a few books but you haven't practiced law you don't really know what it's like you're still very much a baby lawyer you know in the infant years you're not yet qualified and so I very much took the approach that okay I want to work with people who are the best at what they do so that I'm exposed to that so that I can also develop my own abilities and become the best lawyer that I can be And then from that position, you know, I will be able to then move into whatever, you know, whatever takes my fancy, but from a position of really understanding how things work, having a grounding that is, you know, that can't be taken away from me, that experience, um, that expertise is, is mine forever. And so my approach was very much, okay, how can I make sure I'm learning from the best, doing the most complex work, really stretching myself, challenging myself so that I can be the best lawyer I can be. And for me, I guess once I'd identified an area of law I was interested in, which was international arbitration, it was then about finding the best place really to nurture that sort of career. The tax associate role that you mentioned. So this was actually something that I did before the master's because what happened to me is that when I finished my undergraduate studies, I knew that I wanted to do a master's at that point because I just... I wasn't clear on really what area of law I wanted to go you into. Want to find you, yeah. I don't know, you might have heard from others that especially when you're from my background, there's a lot of, I don't know, when you look at the bar, for example, and it's ethnic makeup, there are, you know, there aren't very many black barristers. But for those that you do see, a lot of them are concentrated in areas such as, you know, criminal law, family law, immigration law. And these were all things that I, I had an interest in. But as I studied them, I thought, actually, really, this isn't me. I, I wanna, yeah, yeah I'm, I really think that I would like to do commercial law. But the commercial bar in particular was, you know, incredibly hard to get into. The least diverse by sure, by far. And so I thought, you know, I actually would like to do some further studies because I'm not quite sure yet which direction I want to go in. So I applied for scholarships to study in the US because I thought, you know, I want an international career. Let's do that. And I I remember going through this process and I I got a scholarship. I was awarded a scholarship to go to Harvard um, or MIT. I thought, okay, brilliant. I'd love to do that. But then... The scholarship didn't guarantee you entry into the school of your choice. So I applied to Harvard Law School and then they came back to me and said, oh, you know, I I didn't get in. Essentially, I was wasn't experienced enough just coming out of university here in the UK at 21. I thought, what? But then I understood in the US, you have to do a sort of undergraduate degree before you can even do a law degree. Yeah. Or you can even do a master's. And so the, you know, the the culture was just different that you don't really have systems doing a law master's. (laughs) You know, I thought, okay, 
but I'm not taking that for an answer. So, you know, ultimately I was given the choice of going to Harvard, but not to study law. I could only do, I think it was the thing that I thought I might, that might work for me was working at the School of Government um, at Harvard because, you know, uh -huh. I had that in politics but then I thought you know you know growing up here in the UK you know we're very aware of the sort of badges of elitism that people stick on their CV and it opens doors you know whether it's Oxbridge or going to a certain public school and I'd always yeah. been really just sort of repelled by that the thought that oh I need to have this badge on my CV for people to think that I'm good yeah, exactly. And I just felt, I, am I not doing that if I go to Harvard to do something that actually I don't really want to do just because it's Harvard? And I had a real stern word with myself and I just said, no, I'm not doing that. And so instead, I took a year off, worked as a tax associate at PwC okay. to make some money because I thought if I'm going to have to pay for myself, I'll pay for myself. And as it turned out, I got offers from other universities. So NYU being one of them with a scholarship. So I was able to study in New York it, it, instead, doing the masters in law that I wanted to do, and feeling that sense, you know, that I guess feeling that agency that yes, what I want I can make happen. I don't need to accept things that others sort of um, impose on me. Right, yeah, that's why I did the tax associate job. It was I had zero interest really, but I needed to make some money before I could go off to New York. <laughs> I love that little, you know, um, I guess, oh, blip out of your career moment. Just, just like, this was a moment where I did what was needful. But I really, really love this standing in what you wanted to do, because I think sometimes, you know, because of cultural shifts, you think, oh, maybe I adjusted the system. But it's like, actually, no, because the system that built me is already different. I'm built to go and do a master's at 21, where America, I'm like, you haven't built your students to do the same. But sorry, I'm ready for this. And I know I can contend with this. And even though you had to make adjustments after the first semester, you did make those adjustments um, exactly. and, you know, you made the success. And I think, yeah, it's really interesting how differently, you know, we, we think of careers and we just think, yeah, that person is in this and I'm in this, but our journeys are so different based on, you know, where we're from. And, you know, and this goes down to not just country, but, you know, um, it, it, as you've said, ethnicity, what schools you go in, what schools you go to, like so many different things mean that. The, our experience of a similar thing or experience of the same thing can be so different and varied and layered and come with you know so many different histories and some histories are more you know storied than others because some people have a more straightforward progression where you know others have like yourself a more nuanced and interesting journey so you talked about you know finding yourself within the law and understanding that you know commercial law was a space you wanted to be in and then working you know and you've worked you worked for quite some time, you know, nine, nine, about nine, ten years within, you know, organisations to understand commercial, commercial law, but specifically international arbitration. And you've taken that and you've now formed Strand Sahara, which is your own founded company. And the focus is, you know, businesses in Africa or businesses in the UK that relate back to Africa, but also businesses within sub-Saharan Africa. First question I want to ask is Strand Sahara. What is the what was the story behind the naming of the company Strand Sahara? Coming up with a name was was really hard actually. I, yeah. I struggled, and it well at that time when I was starting, I had two partners as well, and we were all really struggling to come up with a name. 
because everything that we had thought was really cool and clever had been taken already pretty much and then some of what we thought was really cool and clever everyone else said mm, no sorry like latin really no she <laughs> but you know no one's gonna get that <laughs> right exactly and so we thought okay well let's let's put those ideas to one side and think about something that actually speaks to what we're doing and who we are and so the thing that linked us was that we had all we had all studied at King's College in London and oh, the, the legal campus was grand. And I mean, the great thing about that also is that it's very much the legal heart of London, given that you've got the Royal Courts of Justice just down the road. Yeah. Um, and then also now the Rolls Building, the Supreme, well, Supreme Court's a bit further away. But, you know, the, it was very much if you were a litigator in the UK, you would always be in that area. Yeah. So we thought that was good because the whole concept behind the business was that we wanted to use the expertise that we had gained from, you know, what many say is the le not just, you know, the legal heart of London, it's the legal heart of the world in that a lot of the world's legal systems, especially on the continent, derived from common law, which was developed. And so it's it's taking the expertise that we have gained in the legal heart of the world, but using it to benefit Africa. And so the Sahara connection came in and, you know, we were looking at many different alternative words, but that seemed to have a little bit of a something about it, the strand Sahara together the alliteration maybe, but also the fact that it was such a unique name. Nobody was using it. We felt that it's something we could own. And then it accurately reflected us bringing legal expertise from the legal center of the world for the benefit of sub-Saharan Africa. Now at the time it was sub-Saharan, but you know, actually with, with it's above Sahara and sub-Saharan, yeah. but you know, it's very much a word that people associate with the continent. So that was the thinking behind it. Okay, that's so interesting because I think I, when I saw the name, I sort of picked up on this idea of, you know, uh, a linking of, you know, one place to another and, you know, using okay. what you had um, to go to go back home. But I think that kind of also the strand, I just didn't even think about it. But I guess I'm not in the legal field. I love that sort of double or triple layered naming. I think it's it's such a lovely name because in a sense, it, yeah, it shows the heart, but this, this idea of the strand, it shows the heart. Um, of what the company does. Now you talk about, you spoke about having two partners or two other partners when starting the company. Are you still with those partners or are you solely the CEO and founder of the company at the moment? Yes, yeah, so we did, We I did have two partners at the beginning where we were really fleshing out the idea. But yes, no, we, unfortunately we decided for different reasons, health reasons, and also just other commitments that we weren't all in the same position and all able to move forward with the business as, you know, the to, to really make the partnership work. And so I was still very much adamant that this was the right thing to do and I was ready to do it. And so before we launched, we made that decision, which is why Strand Sahara now, I'm very much the founder and CEO because what you see today is very much come out from, you know, post-launch, what we have put out, what I have put out there with others that I've worked with. I do have other partners, but in a different sense, in yeah. that in delivering the service, we have to engage legal practitioners who are qualified in other jurisdictions. So, for example, the eight other African countries that we cover, 
And so the partners that we have at the moment relate to the law firms within those other countries that we work together with to deliver our services. But yes, it's, you know, there's so much to learn there and to learn or that I could say there. And, And I do when I'm talking to other business owners about, you know, starting business with other people and the discussions that you really need to have. And I'm really grateful that we had the really important discussions before the launch of the business because yeah. it meant that it meant that you know there were there were no misunderstandings, which I think can easily happen when you're working with people that you know or friends, because there's a lot that's unsaid in those relationships that really needs to be said when it comes to a business. And so one of the things that we do at Shantahara is helping co-founders to put in place agreements so having the right conversations at that early stage otherwise frankly those are the sorts of relationships that can really bring a business to its knees yes I think particularly when you're working with friends you make a lot of assumptions about what's known and what's understood and you know that doesn't always work in business and I've you know I've seen that happen to friends and family like you know you because there's this idea of trust and you think this shared mindset and Again, this is how the law plays a role in, you know, you're sort of like, let's put some things down so that we have an understanding, we have clarity of certain, or or what I call boundaries, I guess, within, you know, what we're going to do here. But the reason I asked the question of clarification on, you know, your partnership is, I want us to delve into, you know, you going into being a business owner. Now you've come from you know, the side where you're advising, you know, businesses and you're speaking to people, but now you had to step in and run a business and you, you know, while you started with partners, you've really been running it as the sole founder. What did you think the transition was going to be like? And I know one of it was, you know, transitioning with partners and not having those partners. Yeah. But aside from that, what do you think the transi- transition was transition was going to look like? <laughs> <laughs> what did it end up looking like for you in the most unexpected way? So I want to see, yeah, most unexpected way. Gosh, it's it's really tough. I really didn't know what to expect, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I come from the corporate world. That was where I had learn everything that was what framed and and you know really sort of just guided every decision that I had made my environment and so I had no idea what it would look like outside of that construct I knew that the things that I didn't like about the corporate world you know very much feeling limited in what I could do limited in who I could work with limited in how much I could earn you know, limited in how much innovation I could bring to what I was doing, all of those things I didn't like. And so I very much relished the opportunity to throw those away. But what I did love was the support that you get, you know, I don't like working on my own. I think that's another reason why I decided not to go down the the bar route and decided to join a, a law firm, because I really wanted to be part of a team. It's again, why the whole decision to start the business was very much a conversation between, you know, three friends wanting to do yeah. it together. But ultimately, when push came to shove and I had to decide, OK, are you ready to do this on your own? I knew that, yes, I am. I'll just have to make it work. And for me, I felt it was really important to get support. So I did have a coach that helped me through okay. the transition from corporate to entrepreneurship. And that was really more about exploring, I guess, what entrepreneurship Um, looks like for me so thinking about okay what are my values what are my strengths where will I need support how can I make sure that I am you know really setting myself up for success here and then in addition I joined a business accelerator um, so that I could 
be amongst the community of entrepreneurs and sort of I guess just vibe off their energy and ask them questions and you know that the accelerator lasted a year so it was a really great opportunity for me to get support from that community because what I did find was that you know almost overnight my peer group my support network had disappeared you know all of my former friends what former friends are still friends but my peer group my friends my colleagues you know they're all in the corporate world still yeah and you know they don't really understand this entrepreneurship thing they're all trying to climb the ladder and you know it's a very sort of safe career it's very it's held in high esteem there are all sorts of reasons why you wouldn't leave and they couldn't really understand what I was doing and so yeah, I had to find a new tribe, really. And, and I'm still on that journey, actually, of finding the right people. But it's been amazing because there's nothing like, you know, having connection with, with people on a sort of almost visceral level. Like They just get you and they yeah. just you know, and they understand what you're doing and why you don't need to explain it. That's just been so wonderful, finding those people. And Black Founders Hub is part of that journey as well. It's then creating a space for those people to actually come together in a more formal way and for us to be able to support each other and have a community that we can lean on who gets it. You know, you don't need to explain. You don't need to, you know, worry that you're not going to fit in or people won't understand or get you. So, yeah, it it was not easy. (laughs) I joke that I went through a period of hibernation and I literally did uh, where I was almost mourning, really, the life that I had because it was very comfortable and I had lots of friends and, you know, I knew what I was doing and I was, you know, progressing in the career. I was on partnership track. It was all good from an external point of view. But inside, I knew that I wasn't really fulfilling what I felt is my purpose and that there was more that I needed to do to really think, to believe that I had done everything I could to make the changes that I wanted to see happen. And having children was actually really, it was, it was almost like the spark that started that journey, having my first son and looking at him and just thinking, you know, no, I'm not happy for him to go through the things that I've gone through. Yeah. Um, right. And it's so funny that when it's you, you can put up with so much, you know, you can say, oh, I'll deal with it. It's fine. Then when you sort of impose that or, or imagine that life having to be led by someone you really care about, it's so it's, I don't know, I found it easier to identify that, no, this is not right. We need to do something about it. I want my boys to, you know, be able to thrive and be who they are and, you know, do what is important to them and not feel that they need to conform or beg for a corporate job or, you know, make themselves smaller so as not to, you know. Anyway, so I just mentioned all of that because I'm still on that journey, quite frankly, of making that full transition. A lot of people on the entrepreneurial side have said, yeah, actually, you need to like decorporatize yourself a bit more. (laughs) Still a bit. I don't know what it is, but you're not, 100% there yet you're still you've got this glaze that comes over sometimes where where you're just you know you're it's like you're doing the motions but you're not really here and so yeah there's a lot of work that I'm still doing to to really fully be my authentic self and you know show up in the world how I truly really am and you know so I guess what I'm saying as well is that in the corporate world as a black woman you adapt so much that you can 
I think, lose your own sense of identity and who you are, which is really sad, but it's a coping mechanism. You know, it's what you need to do to survive. So I'm glad to be out from that perspective. But yeah, it's tough. (laughs) Definitely. Just, you know, feeding into the last thing you said, I think, you know, sometimes you have to take a version of ourselves into work, one that doesn't react or, and I think that's why you say views that you have a glaze over it. So you're taught not to always show what you're thinking on your face because, you know, one is the perception of an immediate reaction. What's it going to be perceived as, you know, where you might just be like, ah, you might say, oh, was she uncomfortable? Was she angry? And then you also don't want to start having conversations about it was just a fleeting reaction or I was taking time to process these things. And I think we do do that a lot, you know, in the workspace. And I've had experience of working in very corporate spaces and I, now I don't. So I, I think I've also had sort of these, I guess, psychotomies of self where you're like my work self and then you take it off. And I think I've had this where I was on the phone and someone was like, who is this? And it was a friend. And I was like, sorry, I just had to let go of my work voice. <laughs> I was like, excuse me. <laughs> um, wow. I was like, oh, yeah. Because actually, actually, I answered and they were like, have I called the right person? And I was like, just I'm still sort of dropping some work things. I will be with you in a moment. And it's a very interesting code switch that we do. Um, but I think the truth of what you say about, you know, starting a business and, you know, entrepreneurship can be very lonely is, a thing that I think is a common thread a lot of entrepreneurs talk about and they you know they say you know you don't realize how much you don't realize how much is going to be on you you're you know you have to figure out everything from the lights and the water being on to you know who am I going to hire and how is this person going to thrive in this community that I brought them into and how is money going to come in next month so that not just the bills of the business are paid but this person can pay their mortgage and how so it's so many different things you have to think about and handle but you are so proactive in supporting yourself because I think Strand Sahara is what two and a half almost three years old and you you know started with the coach you joined an accelerator and you've also founded you know a hub for other black founders and I think you know we need to take time to say talk about just how proactive you've been in not just supporting yourself but building support networks for other founders you know when you approached the coach and the accelerator were you aware of what you would or how you were shoring yourself up had this come from previous advice or is this just how you always handle change in your life so I guess I've never really had a big change like this before not yeah but I guess my approach and it's just I don't know where it's come from but I think I've always had this and I I think I should credit my parents because it must have been them you know my my mum and my dad sort of instilling in me this idea that there's nothing that I can't do yeah you know anything that somebody has done you know they have the same brain that I have so you know there's there's really nothing you can't do it's up to you what you want to do and there's also this idea that you know your brain is just as capable as anyone else's so don't follow other people do what you believe is right for you like use your own mind come up with your you know make your own decision and so for me I'm very much I'm confident in my ability to decide what is right for me and I knew that when I was thinking that I want to do something else there was a lot of muddiness in there I wasn't really clear on what I wanted to do or why and so I really wanted to explore okay who am I like what do I really think And I knew that my 
experience in the corporate world and not just that before that as well navigating school university was that I was always trying to you know I was doing this code switching or adapting or you know getting the lay of the land and then okay what do I need to do to succeed here let's do that but it was never really from okay well who really am I what do I really want to do and so I knew that I needed to do some work to really figure that out and so I started with books really looking at books looking at you know who's really looked at this who can I learn from and then I I came across a book which was by someone who was a coach and um, it was called The Brilliance Quotient and her name's Rena Dial she is based in the UK of Indian descent and I just really resonated with everything she was saying and so I just contacted her and said can I work it was very much not necessarily I was looking for a coach but in my exploration, mostly through books for help with really uncovering what my values are, you know, what do I really want to do? Why am I here? That I discovered her and felt that, yeah, it would be really beneficial to work with her because I really like the way that she approaches things. It's not very, you know, she sort of took a lot of inspiration from her Asian roots and looking at those philosophies and bringing that together with her experience of Western culture. And I loved that. I loved that it was more, it was less about, I guess, book smarts, but what was naturally intuitively right to her. Yeah. Yeah, so that is always what leads me. It's very much, okay, what do I need? Let's figure it out for myself. And, you know, it will be fine, we'll get there. But a lot of reading, and I, I think that's also something that's been common throughout my life. I, I have always loved reading. I think it's so important. I think it expands your mind in so many ways, exposes you to new ideas, even wakes up some of your own ideas. But, you know, perhaps you don't know they're there or they haven't had a chance to surface. So reading, and I say reading, but actually probably for the last maybe six years or so, I rarely read, actually read a physical book. It's more um, books for me. Okay. Um, but it's just that idea of trying to learn from others who and just read widely. I think that's been really helpful for me, more as a catalyst for helping me to make my own decisions as opposed to you know, telling me what to do. I was going to say, of course, yeah, as someone who reads like 100 and something books a year, I'm like, oh, audio books are books. I just uh, struggle with other people's voices. But I read a lot more fiction than nonfiction. Okay. So I, think I want to do a lot more nonfiction. So I think I'm probably going to do the audiobook route for that because I think that gives space for another person's voice to insert themselves in the narration. <laughs> Where when it yeah. comes to fiction, I'm like, no, thank you. I will, I will, I will voice all the characters myself. <laughs> No, you're so right, because nobody can do it quite right, yeah. you know. Like, no, but that's not how that's that person right. would say yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> Just get very invested in, in books. But I think I want to go back to, you know, what you said about, you know, your parents instilling this idea that you can do it. And I think, you know, my parents had this thing where they'd always say, you know, the person that, and this goes back to school, the person that came first, so they have two heads. And it, it sounds really harsh, but what they meant to say was the person who did best use their, they use their brain power. So why don't you use yours? And it's, so it's not calling of you to be like that person is saying, but that person, you know, figured out what was inside of them and brought it to life. And the challenge is for you to do the same. And then the irony is, you know, we move into workspaces and what we think first is, you know, how, uh, you know how can I we, we sort of put ourselves second in the equation where it's also well 
where what we're meant to ask is how can this place make a success of my gift or of my qualities you know and how can I be my best self so that I you know thriving within the work I bring to the space where instead we sort of want the the work to do that growing and challenging and shaping of us mm. and yeah I think thinking about what the you know the coach who whose book you read and you then took on using her cultural background as a framework for how she steps into the world it's really important because Again, this is part of bringing your whole self to work. How do I bring the entirety of my, you know, my collection of philosophies and ways of working and, you know, thought, how I think about the world? How do I bring this into work? Because sometimes you can go and say, okay, what's the system in place? We'll use that system. But does that system work best for you? Is that how you flourish best? No. And yeah. I just feel that there's so much within the African identity that we just haven't tapped into. And I think, yeah. and, and the wonderful thing about, about Black Founders Hub is that we're finally able to do that. We're exploring business from our own cultural perspective yes. in a way that, you know, you can't, you know, in the business accelerators I was part of before or other masterminds, you know, you've got, it's a predominantly sort of English culture, which is what you have in the corporate world here as well. And that sort of underpins everything, all of the ideas, the philosophies. It's not just English, but European. Whereas in this space, we're exploring our African, you know, African cultures or, you know, things that we've, we've, we innately know to be true, but, you know, aren't necessarily reflected in corporate mainstream. And so that's really impacted how we think about things like, I mean, everything from, you know, starting the meetings, for example, meetings in music. Because that is just how we get into the mood. You know, that is an important part of our just identity. And it means a lot. It, it, it just gets us all pumped and ready to go. And we've never seen that before. It's us leading into our own, you know, what, what works for us? What do we want? Yeah. How can we champion that and really bring it in and make it part of the business? You know, we're also thinking about how we use African values in the running of our business as well, in terms of how we interact with people in the team, how we deal with disagreements, how we reward people, yeah. how we think about, you know, even really large concepts like capitalism and where we fit into that. And actually what is, you know, what is a type of capitalism that works better for us and our mm. ideas of community and, you know, not necessarily always focus on the individual so it's really I think there's a lot of work to be done here but it's great that these conversations are happening so that we can come up with our own ideals and norms really for running businesses so yeah no I I think that the cultural aspect is really important and I love that I'm starting to see more people embrace their, their African culture and see it as valuable within the business context I think I love that thing about starting with music I should start the podcast with music and bring people you know into the space and into the mood because I'm I'm usually listening to music before you know start a recording I'm just like I need to pull back but you know what if I bring that in here but I think yeah those little things are interesting and important I think about when I go home to Nigeria and I speak to friends and you talk about you know like when or if I go to a meeting with them because I'm very nosy and I just want to see how things are done I'm just like this is so different because you know 
know, I'm thinking, you know, we need to have this PowerPoint put together and this deck and this, and there's certain, there's certain ways of working I'm so tied to. And then I see mm-hmm. them and, you know, meetings feel, you know, it's serious, but there's a casualness also to it. It's sort of like, I'm coming into a trusting, you know, relationship with you. So we're going to get to know each other and not just go to the logistics straight away, which I think can be very British thing. We're like, okay, down to business here, the numbers here. And it's, you know, and there's these little differences, not even little, quite big. And I, I always find it really interesting to watch the business space and how it develops there. So I want to move the conversation into what's hot in industry, because I want us to talk a bit more about what um, Strand Sahara does. And I think what's hot in industry would really help us know or understand a bit more and where you are. And what's hot in industry, as you all know, is just where we look at what's going on within the sector that our guest is interested in. And we pull some facts or a quote and we have them explore that through, you know, their the lens of their expertise. Now, Strand Sahara, we know, operates within the African continent and is, you know, striving to help businesses there be developed so that they can feed back into the economies and grow the economies. And what we have seen over the last few months are two, and um, this is biased obviously, two Nigerian companies, so Paystack and Flutterwave, who have, one has been acquired by Stripe for about $200 million and the other Flutterwave raised investment of about $173 million recently. And this, you know, uh, the news, I was, I was very ecstatic to see, you know, companies building, you know, within the tech space and developing product that is being, you know, seen as valuable and giving the money to then further develop an impact economy. What, you know, as a business, who's as a lawyer who's investing in this space and giving business businesses these structures to grow to you know 200 million dollar valuation what do these valuations and these um acquisitions tell us about what's going on within the african entrepreneurship space okay great question and i have to start by saying lots of love for nigeria like please feel free to ring the bell okay my husband is nigerian my children therefore nigeria it's just been yeah I, what I love about Nigeria in particular is the strength of identity and culture and uncompromising pride in, in that. It's everything. And I'm I, stubborn. <laughs> well, whatever. I love it. So, yes, I, I think that it shows us that we are moving to a time where I think a, a lot of people are waking up to the fact that our future is the future of the global economy is African. And there's so many reasons for that. I mean, we at Strand Sahara just produced a report about the five trends that we see that are making this the best time to start or build or invest in your an African-focused business. The fact that, gosh, where to start? Okay, so when you look at the African continent, all of the yeah. resources that we have, the people, firstly, we have the largest population of young people, and that's growing, people who are coming up with new ideas, who are who are building the, the unicorns or the corporate giants of tomorrow. We have the resources, natural resources, the minerals. When we think about the fact that we're moving towards this greener economy, you know, where is all of the technology coming from to power this, to create the batteries or for the chips that need to go into the ever improving bits of technology, whether it's a smartphone or, or what have you? The coal train in Congo, which is, you know, provides 60 percent of the world's supply. The land mass. So when we think about the fact that we need to feed people and where is this food going to come from? Africa's land mass is like greater than 
that how many other continents combined like we just we know that the future of the world is going to very much be dependent on africa's resources human physical natural and a lot of people are waking up to that and they're looking at okay where are the growth regions of the future where should we be investing our time energy money if we want to ensure that going forward we're going to continue to be prosperous and continue to make the sorts of profits that we've become accustomed to and so all eyes are on the continent right now and they're looking for opportunities to invest in businesses that are you know seeking to deal with some of the huge problems that we have on the continent obviously fintech is one of those given yeah. that access to finance and just the uh, you know the ability to use money yeah. in a way that we're so accustomed here whether it's making payments or getting a loan or you know the things that we really take for granted that aren't available to so many people on the continent and they have the money <laughs> you know that's the thing and so i think people are realizing that there there really is an opportunity here to not just make money in the business sense of you know providing a service but also to really contribute to the development of the continent for the benefit of africa's people and not just the shareholders of a company the other trends is the the african continental um, free trade agreement which yeah. is bringing together all um, 55 African AU recognized countries. Well, I say this because there are really 54 African countries, yeah. but we do have the region in Western Sahara, which has got a level of independence, although that's disputed between Western Saharans and Morocco. And I'm always respectful of that. You know, I, I don't really understand that struggle and I'm not trying to say one side is right and one side is wrong. Yeah. Either way, the AFTA is about bringing everyone together and creating for the first time an Africa-wide trading block, which will facilitate intra-Africa trade in a way that, you know, we're accustomed to, or at least we were before Brexit in the EU. And I think that people are looking at these developments and realizing that, you know, combined with the interest that we've now got from people in the diaspora to invest in on the continent, whether it's African-Americans or people in Europe and the rest of the world, you combine that with the technological advances, which mean that, you know, a lot of the things that perhaps made investing in Africa more risky for people are becoming, you know, I guess the risks are being minimized by the impact and, and ability of technology to, to make entry into these markets easier. I just think that there's so much to be really positive about and the fact that investors are coming in, how I feel about that is, I don't know, is a bit multifaceted. I would love, you know, for example, for Paystack to be fully African owned, but I understand that, you know, companies need capital to grow and they weren't able to get it in the you know traditional sense and they were yeah. able to eventually from Stripe. So I understand that, you know, I know the legal head at Paystack and love what she has been doing from the start. We are, through Flutterwave, I think, seeing that that first move has now made it possible yeah. for Flutterwave to raise the money without having to be acquired. And so that, I think, is going to be the story going forward, where confidence, I guess, is growing and more opportunities will therefore be for African entrepreneurs to get the funding they need to give their ideas that, you know, the potential to live and thrive that we all we all deserve but only yeah. a very small 
fraction of us actually receive. Love that you sort of mentioned Paystack and having to go outside to get the funding needed. Because my second question was going to be about the concern that, you know, some of these companies might be taken advantage of because in the past, you know, when talent and I, you know, talent resources have been exported from Africa to the West, there has been one side has always gained more and it's always been the West and it's sort of, you know, a, a I guess a mining of resources that hasn't been equal. With the work that Strand Sahara does, how do you, you know, when you work with your with your clients, how are you having how are you having to think about laws that protect these businesses? Because you know, a paystack and flutterway was un- unexpected and unprecedented. And are there legal frameworks that are actually protecting these companies? And how is Trans Sahara Strand Sahara standing in the gap mm-hmm. with some of these, you know, gaps in the legal yeah. language? There are so many ways, gosh. Uh, So we have, we've created a a framework to try and make this easier for business owners. We call it the five legal protections. And this really just distills all of the myriad of legal obligations and challenges and protections into five really key distinct areas to think about. It's too much to go into now, but I would encourage people, please, the information's on our website. But what I'd like to focus on is, I think, you know, when it comes to investment, because that often is an important part of the journey of these sorts of companies that need a lot of capital to grow. And I should say not every company does. So that's also important. But you know, if you are the likes of Flutterwave or Paystack, you are going to need an injection of money. And so what we do is really help with understanding for business owners and founders, what the different forms of investment are and which ones are right for them. And then what sort of terms they should be agreeing to and those that they should be running away from, frankly, because of what you mentioned, the propensity of some investors to want to really take advantage um, using the leverage they have, you know, the the money that they're waving to get founders to sign agreements that really are, you know, incredibly one-sided and unfair. Ultimately, the founders, the entrepreneurs, they are the value. They are the ones who created the business that have not just had the idea, but actually done the hard work of of executing it in a way that has resonated with the market. The investors, you know, their leverage is that, you know, they they happen to have capital. Some of that they have made, may have made themselves and may have, you know, inherited. Frankly, we don't know, but they haven't had to do the hard work of coming up with a new business and making it work. So, I like to remind founders of that and just, you know, just reset things in their mind. Like, look, you are the gold here. You are the valuable bit. Okay. You have already achieved the feat that's really hard to achieve. So if you're bringing people in for them, you know, to, to benefit from their money, then it needs to be on terms that you, that respect you and your value. And so we look at the term sheet and understanding what the different clauses there actually mean how you can make sure that you know the key risk that you don't get you can't be fired from your own company um, happens (laughs) or that your interest in the company isn't forever and ever diluted at the x you know so that your investors are able to claw more and more value out or you you know how to make sure that you're never in a position where your investors have so much influence over your decisions because they've demanded board seats and they've demanded vetoes that you're not able to run the business you know and then what happens typically is that the investors who are just looking at their return 
they want to do whatever is going to make them the most money now, even though long term is the wrong decision, you know. And so there are all of these things really to think about and to make sure that you that you understand so that when you're agreeing to take on this investment, you do not sign up to these sorts of terms that really as you say, you know, put them at a disadvantage and take advantage of what they have already achieved. Thank you so, so much, Rashida. And I think, you know, any founders, wherever you are in the world, I think you definitely want to go on the Strand Sahara website and just look, yes, you know, what they do, because I think it's really important, particularly, I think, for founders emerging from the African continent to think about, you know, how they protect their ideas, their work, but also the journey. Because I think one thing that's really important is we need companies that are going to be are going to last the hundred, three hundred year marks because they are they have been developed and built with the economy that they are they've been founded in in mind. Because a lot of a lot of what happens when ideas are exported is we start building for you know the West and you start building to model something that isn't actually the reality of where you're building and it's I think it's yeah it's really important that founders protect their vision so that you know yeah we have companies lasting as you know many years and going generations and generations and being a part of the economy in a you know very what's the word grounding way thank you so much Rashida it's been such a pleasure to speak with you and just you know hear about your experience your journey work with Strand Sahara but also the Black Founders Hub because you know it's it's really fantastic to see that you're already paying back in a space that you just started in and the final thing we're going to talk about is expectations because obviously this is beyond all my expectations and my question for you is looking ahead you know Strand Sahara has already done so much and is existing within you know the African entrepreneurship framework in a really strong way when you look ahead to maybe three five years where would you like to see the company develop or, or what industries would you see would you like to see Strand Sahara developing in for the African continent? Really good question. Yeah. <laughs> so Strand Sahara to me is still a very young company, you know. Yeah. Um we although you know technically started two and a half years ago we only started trading actually in tw- October 2019 because before wow. that time it was all you know, together doing the research, doing the, you know, the product iterations. So I'm still very much on that journey of, of, of I guess, exploring our potential. And yeah. that's very much being led by our clients and the, ch- the challenges that we're mm. seeing. So based on that, based on the current, you know, what we're currently getting through as in, you know, what people need and where we can really make the most difference, what we're looking to do in the, sh- the medium to sh- long term is to really become a hub for businesses who are ambitious, you know, who are African, who want to build regional and global brands to get the support that they need, not just legal, but also financial support and the marketing support. Not that we would be providing it all, but we want to be a source of information and connections and network because what we found is that a lot of our clients are in the diaspora and they're really keen to now use you know, the expertise and experience they've gained to make a positive impact on the continent. But they don't necessarily have, you know, the the networks on the ground to help them. And it's about building that up so that there is confidence that they can do it. They've got a network they can rely on and they can hit the ground running, really. Because I think we need to see more diaspora engagement with the continent. We need more people to, instead of going the other way, to start coming back because we've got some brilliant minds already who are contributing to, you know, the wealth and development of already wealthy nations. 
when frankly at home we have people literally dying for want of clean water because of hunger all of these you know things that are easily solvable but just require a mass effort and will to change and so yes we want to be that bridge really i guess for people who want who have the ability the expertise to do this but just need the right connections to get going an important part of that for us in the sort of short term is incorporating after into everything we do and showing businesses how they can benefit from that African free continental African continental free trade area agreement to build their businesses within the continent. So yes, that's the direction we're moving in, but it's very much in response to what we're seeing out there and what people need. You know, I was a disputes lawyer, as I said, international arbitration was my thing. I loved it. But the minute I decided that I wanted to really work with supporting Africa-focused businesses, I had to ditch that. And that was what a lot of that initial research was. It was figuring out, okay, what do people actually need? And so although initially I had thought, oh, it'd be wonderful to do an online dispute resolution business, that wasn't where the need was, quite frankly. It was, no, how do we set up our businesses the right way? How do we get protected? How do we make sure that we can build a brand that, is is protected against competitors so that we can you know scale our businesses all of these questions were what people were asking us from Nigeria to Ethiopia you know to Kenya everywhere and so that was the focus that we had to take at Strand Sahara and it's just really wonderful to see you know some of the businesses that we've been supporting and what they've already achieved it's just it's so easy I think that's the thing that I need to do as well is find a way to spotlight some of our clients so that people can perhaps be inspired and realize that staying in that corporate role that they hate, that's not really fulfilling, that they feel, you know, kind of like it's the golden handcuffs, we call it. Golden, <laughs> you know, it's well paid, it's very comfortable. Everybody yeah. gets it comfortably, but it's still handcuffs, you know, to break free of that, to really do what they can, what, what, I feel that they have the potential to do, which far exceeds what they're doing at the moment and be really beacon for the, for those championing them people. So yeah, a bit of a ramble there, I'm afraid, but it's something I'm really passionate about. You know, we call it the African dream that we yeah. want people to realize the African dream, which for us is about building a business that really, you know, gives you the life that you crave, fulfills you, but at the same time has such a positive impact on the lives and life chances of Africa's people. Yeah. That's on the continent or frankly in the diaspora as well. You know, we all so badly need more economic empowerment in our community. So yes, I'll end on that. The African dream people. (laughs) And I think honestly that's the perfect place to end. You know, we should all in the diaspora and on the continent be, you know, striving towards the African dream which is the betterment of not just the African economy, but the lives of persons of African descent everywhere in the world. And honestly, yeah, I think that's a mic drop. We've, you know, <laughs> cemented this episode perfectly, Rashida. So just to close out, I'm going to ask, and I think the three strands, there's Rashida, the person, there's Rashida, Strand, Sahara, and there's, you know, the Black Founders Hub. So can you just let people know where to find, you know, these three separate entities because I'm going to call you an entity because you are <laughs> um, <laughs> you. Where can we find on social and website just give us that information please 
Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I am a professional speaker. I've been doing it as part of my legal career, but also post that now with Shan Sahara. And so do take bookings from www.shidaabdullahi.com. That's the personal email website, business website, Strand Sahara, www.strandsahara.com. Nice and simple. Strand, like a strand of hair, Sahara, like the desert. And that is where you can find lots of free information about the five legal protections that I mentioned and how we can assist. One of the great things that, you know, I think that we've managed to do is create a really easily accessible legal resource so all of our prices are 100% transparent and fixed you will always know what you're getting on the tin if you like um, when you work with us black founders hub so we are at www.blackfoundershub.com and you can through the website learn a bit more about us and if you would like to apply we have spots for founders on cohorts of 10 where we bring 10 founders of professionally black owned professional services businesses together for a mastermind we learn from people in our industry who've already built multi-million pounds turnover businesses and support each other in achieving that same goal and on socials you can find me on linkedin that's probably where i live the most rashida abdullahi for strand sahara we do have a very active instagram account where we give lots of insights tips and tricks for business owners that's at Strand Sahara so please do follow us there as well thank you so much Rashida it's been a pleasure to have you on beyond all my expectations I feel like I've learned so much and I'm so inspired to just look back home and see what's going on and you know try to do more and yeah thank you thank you so much again and thank you so thank much you. everyone again this has been beyond all my expectations and I'll see you next episode goodbye